0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to Sunday service this morning. Lots of green and blue out there. Um, This picture behind me is a picture of anybody venture a guess? Olympic National Forest. Who said that? That is spot on. That's right. I took this about two weeks ago. Do you know that it's the only rainforest in North America? And it's right in our backyard. And it was like being in a magical place. It was just amazing. And it's apropos for today because we're going to talk about this concept of wilderness. What it is when we are in the wilderness And how are we to relate to the wilderness and where God is in the picture when we are experiencing a wilderness season in our life? I want to start by reading the passage for us. We're going to read from Psalm chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, you can open that up or follow along with me on the screens as I read. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Psalm chapter 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me, therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The word of the Lord. This is the last sermon we're going to do this summer in the Psalms, and I wanted to make sure we learn, in my opinion, one of the best lessons to learn from the Psalms, and it's that almost every Psalm is naked honesty before God and before each other. These psalms are written as public prayers and songs to be sung together in community, and yet they are so honest. There's a rawness and a transparency to to these words that are often uncomfortable even. And we couldn't say to each other now, but this is what the people of Israel did in part because of the extreme conditions that they suffered as a people. And today, we have a psalm that's very much in tune with uh, this uh, trait. It's honest. It's a naked confession of what our translators today call despair. In some translations, it's being downcast of soul. And using today's language, we would probably use the word depression, Uh, If you read commentators and uh, students of this psalm, all of them will tell you that this is the single best, most explicit passage in the whole Bible that deals with the topic of what we will call depression. And the first thing I want to tell you about this idea of despair or depression is that Christians do not, will not, cannot suffer or struggle less than anybody else, that we come to this faith not because it's going to rescue us or be an escape from suffering. In fact, it teaches us how to suffer better but not suffer less. There's a call in the scriptures for us to know how to suffer and why we suffer but God is not in the business of eliminating suffering in your life. Now, as a whole movement in history, God is working to wipe away every tear. But the way God does that, does that is not by creating some subculture or some mechanism that allows us to cope or escape from suffering. That just is never the case in the Bible. In fact, when we go into the book of Hebrews, we're going to see... That if we bear witness to Christ, we're not just putting forth our agendas or our will, but we're actually speaking of what we have seen and heard of Christ. And we do that in culture. What biblical history tells us is there's suffering to be had. And then the whole book of Hebrews crescendos with a listing of all of the witnesses of Christ who died because of their witness in culture. And so, what we know from the Bible is that though suffering ultimately is something God is going to do away with for good, right now, in your life, in my life, the call is not to eliminate suffering, but to know how to enter into it with God the way God enters into it and find meaning, and purpose, and ultimately what the scriptures call redemption in suffering. There is Christian uh, theology out there that seeks to teach that Christianity is about not suffering. It's about happiness and prosperity, and it's just not true. And I find that it's really hard for me to not buy into the prosperity gospel, even if I don't think I am explicitly doing so, I'm an American. I live here. I'm surrounded by the encouragement to be a consumer all day long. And I like to throw money at the problem. I like to throw other people's suffering at the problem so that my life can be more convenient and filled with less suffering and less struggle. Even in uh, secular uh, thought, uh, what, we know, what we do know is that pain, as unenjoyable as it is, it is the best way we grow and mature as human beings. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, number one, the age at which we start numbing the pain in our life is the age we get stuck at emotionally. So a most explicit example of this is abusing drugs. If you start abusing drugs because you have pain in your life at the age of 13, you can be 60 years old and emotionally still be 13 years old because you never learned how to deal with pain in your life. And what matures your emotional state is how you relate to pain. And so if you started escaping pain and started numbing away the pain, you never had to grow emotionally. So no matter how old you are or look, you're still emotionally 13. How many of you know emotional 13-year-olds? It's that other person I know. (laughs) Uh, Relationships. Is it possible for you to grow in intimacy? and love and loyalty without conflict? The answer is no. What is intimacy? It's getting close. As you get close, do you see more or less? You see more. And when you see more, is there going to be more contradiction or less contradiction? More. And if there's more contradiction, you're going to have more conflict. Now, how you resolve conflict together in that relationship will determine the level of intimacy and trust in that relationship. If you never have conflict, you never know. You can be friends or neighbors or friendly for years. And at the site of first conflict, you just say, you know what? I just won't see him anymore. And you're done. No intimacy, no commitment, no love, because there was no conflict. Conflict isn't to be avoided. It's inevitable. And when it happens, the way you choose to relate to it determines whether you're going to grow closer or further apart. Another example, how about work? Uh, a a friend of mine passed on this Harvard Business Review article from 2012 to me. And this article talks about this thing that they call the S-curve. And I've read about the S-curve in multiple uh, different kinds of books, but this uh, article really summarized it. And it basically says this, your life is on an S-curve. It's always like this. And there's going to be slow growth at first, and then you're going to accelerate And it's going to be great for a little bit, and then you're going to start plateauing. And if you, at this point of plateau, don't jump onto the next S-curve through challenge, you're going to start plateauing as a human being. Your profits may not plateau, but you will start plateauing. Here's a quote. As our learning crests, should we fail to jump to new curves, we may actually precipitate our own decline." That doesn't necessarily mean a financial downfall, but our emotional and social well being will take a hit. Forget the plateau of profits. Seek and scale a learning curve. How many of you who go to work, who work with other people, who have people they manage, or who are, if you are bosses or you have a manager, your coworkers, if they are not learning, if they're not growing as human beings, they become increasingly more difficult to relate to and work with. Students are wonderful to be surrounded by. But if you're surrounded just by teachers who already arrived and they know everything... So whether it's in personal development, whether it's in relationships or at work, the call on our lives is for us to know how to be in the wilderness, how to embrace it, how to walk through it, not over it, under it, or around it, but through it with God so that we actually grow and improve as a result of it. One of the things that I bring to the table in this Uh, sermon is that I have a proclivity or a a history of being sort of uh, um, manic depressive. I get really productive for a little bit, and then get really sad, and then I get super unproductive. I stay functional but unproductive, and then I go out of that, and then I get super productive again, and then I get really sad, and I just accepted this about myself. And one of the things I've come to terms with is the fact that I'm a melancholic person. And I'm at a place where I love that about me because I realize the world takes all kinds. If everybody was happy, there would be less genius in the world, less creativity, less beauty. We need people to plumb the depths of the human condition and to stay there long enough to find an insight, to find a pearl and then swim back up to the surface and say, hey, here's a truth. The world takes all kinds. And so there's an invitation here in this passage and in the Psalms for us to recognize God is working on the world. He's been working in history. He's made individuals the way we are. And there's a call to suffer each of us in our own way, to find God in the wilderness. I want to encourage you, if you are somebody that struggles with depression, that struggles with motivation or action, if you're just not that person, it's absolutely okay. You bring something to the table. And you will with God's help. Uh, here's a verse that I want to read to you from Second Corinthians chapter 7. For sadness, as intended by God, produces a repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. There's a sadness that is in accordance with God's will that leads to great things. And I will invite you to how to, into how to think about that. Okay, two points today. Uh, first, overpowered and alone. And second, supported and loved. Overpowered and alone. We'll look at verse 5, 6, and 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. And then verse 11, again, why are you in despair, O my soul? Guess what this psalm is about? about despair it's about depression and being downcast verse 3 9 and 10 describe this despair a little bit verse 3 my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long where is your god notice the psalmist is not just in emotional pain but he's in anguish As a whole person, he's not eating, he's actively sad, and he's also not sleeping. Notice there's a they in the picture. They are asking him, they are mocking him, they are taunting him. Where is your God? Because his life, his circumstances also make it look like he's been completely abandoned. He has no fortune on his side. Everything is going wrong. And it resonates with his own voice. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? So not only is it evident and apparent that God has left him and he's got nothing good going for him, but he also feels that way about himself. So there's the voice within, matched by the mockery without. And so we have verse 10, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day Long, where is your God? Inside and out, David, King David, who wrote this psalm, has nothing left of strength. He's shunned, he's mocked, he's self-isolated, he's been abandoned, he's depressed. Emotionally, physically, psychologically, he is experiencing death. The final way that he says this is, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Picture sort of a carcass washed up on shore and waves just washing over this carcass. The waves don't care. The waves don't see this person. There's a kind of uncaring violence, almost a rhythmic violence that David is painting a picture of. He's gone beyond panic. He's just helpless and hopeless. And then verse 9, I think it's like my favorite verse in this um, passage. I will say to my rock, "Where have you, why have you forgotten me? There's sort of a little bit of a whine in this. God, you call yourself a rock? If you are the rock, why have you forgotten me? So he's getting into that emotional place where he's blaming other people he's feeling resentful it's almost like where were you where are you rock he's saying it in quotes almost and this is one of the reasons i know probably a man wrote this because i don't know about you but more men in my life are whiners than women if if a woman had written this psalm it would be like i'm kind of tired but i have stuff to do so that's all i can write I have to be the glue and hold all of this together. How many of you know more men whiners than women? (laughs) So David was a whiner. There is an unevenness and randomness to our suffering, isn't there? You notice one thing that's missing in this passage uh, is there is no uh, confession of guilt. A lot of the Psalms have guilt in it fault that the psalmist owns up to, that they've not done something they're supposed to be doing. But in this psalm, David remembers the good things he used to do, but bemoans the fact that he can't do it right now. There's no guilt. This thing is just happening to him. It's, it's a sort of a victim confession here. And what that means for us is that this kind of scenario, some version of it, visits any person at any time. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. And it will. It's describing a season, a place. It's describing a certain theme. And it happens to the very best of us. And for me, as I study the passage, the best way to put it is that David is overpowered and he's alone. It's him versus they. He's alone. He's isolated. And he's overpowered. It's these breakers washing over him. Have you ever experienced this? This is Charles Spurgeon. He says this of his own life. Thy severe dealings with me seem to excite all creation to attack me. Heaven and earth and hell call to each other, stirring each other up in dreadful conspiracy against my peace. As in a water spot, the deeps above and below clasp hands. So it seemed to David that heaven and earth united to create a tempest around him. It does feel like that. Like the whole world. Even creation itself is against you. C.S. Lewis, uh, writing famously in his book, A Grief Observed After His Wife Passed, says this, Meanwhile, where is God? Go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face in a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. And one of the questions we find ourselves asking is Has God Himself finally given up on me? And I studied lots of uh, passages and Uh, verses and sermons and books related to this idea over the last decades. And one of the problems I've encountered about sermons and help books that tell you what to do when you're depressed is it tells you things you have to do to get better. But here's what I found as somebody who struggles with depression is that the thing that they're telling me to do Is the very thing I can't do because when I'm depressed, I can't do anything. By virtue of the fact that I'm unable to do, I'm unable to get better. If you read the Psalms, Psalm 42, and you say, Peter, you know what David did when he was depressed? He prayed. I said, well, good for David. I can't pray when I'm depressed. I can't get myself out of bed. I can't do anything when I'm down, when I'm downcast. And so we have verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. The key distinguishing factor between a Christian somebody who believes in Christ and somebody who doesn't believe in Christ is not action, is not the Christian's ability to do something, but it's the Christian's relationship to grace or what the psalmist here calls loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word hesed, which is the Greek word charis, which is the English word grace, which means absolutely unmerited, undeserved unacted upon love, when something entirely other than you chooses to act on you. It's called salvation when they rescue you, when they carry a limp body out of the water. That's called grace. And grace is this this very dangerous and strange and threatening dynamic that God insists upon in his relationship to human beings. And the reason that depression is a great metaphor regularly is that depressed people can't do anything. It's like telling an anorexic to eat. That's the absolute wrong advice to give to an anorexic, and it's the absolute wrong advice to give to somebody who's depressed to do something, to do anything. What if you can't do something? What if you are Hopeless and helpless. And what if it's not just for the depressed, but this is really just a way to talk about the human condition in general. So we are supported and loved when we are alone and overpowered. Verse 5 and 11 Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. When do you use the phrase hope in God? When you don't have anything left. When you pull out your pockets and it's empty. That's hope in God. When do you pray? When you can't do anything else. When you've tried and you're tired. And you're about to give up. Maybe you have given up. You've hit rock bottom. Then you hope in God. I want to give you a couple of application points and then we'll close. The first one is to confess. When you know that it's okay to be depressed. When God calls you to suffer and be in the wilderness. When you understand that God has made each of us so differently. And some of us are asked to be in the wilderness more often than others so that we can experience God in different ways. We can confess. We find the courage and the legitimacy to confess within this community. It's a safe thing to do. We don't have to always be shiny. We don't have to put up a front. We don't have to always say, I'm doing fine. We can confess. The second thing is to commune. You notice verse 4, what he remembers is the community aspect of worship. He remembers leading the procession. He remembers corporate life together. Uh, Tim Keller was asked through a tweet, if you could give my generation one piece of advice or encouragement, what would it be? And Tim Keller's answer to an entire generation is, you are the generation most afraid of real community. Because it inevitably limits freedom and choice. And we're the opt-in culture. We love to optimize and have choice. He wrote, get over your fear. Uh, we are doing a small group campaign. And we love for as many people in this church to join one as possible. You too can get a t-shirt. <laughs> okay, and there's more information coming about that. Uh, third application is to mourn. If you want a C word, it's the challenge to be unhappy. So many times, we are taught that happiness is what we deserve and what we should be. And I'm telling you, happiness is an American myth. You know, historians can trace back to the 1700s when people began to feel like they deserved to be happy. Prior to the 1700s, people just were okay being unhappy. It's true. Verse 11 says, yet praise him. That doesn't mean that I praise God because I'm happy. It's I'm unhappy and yet I praise him. My circumstances are hard and yet I praise him. I'm in the wilderness, yet I praise him. God doesn't want you to be happy necessarily. That's not necessarily God's will for you. Do you know this? Your life isn't meant to be all convenient and streamlined and efficient and productive. Who told you that? It's not the Bible. It's not God. It's not Jesus' life. You don't have to optimize everything. Refusal to be happy, but to be in it and find something. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then to his disciples, he said, stay here and keep watch. Was he talking about the physical place, stay here? Yes. Was he talking about the human condition? Stay here in the sorrow, in the suffering. Don't just escape it. Stay hurt. Yes, he was. Keller, again, quoting uh, him a lot this sermon, says this, Americans sue because we believe nothing should be wrong. We assume happiness as a default. We define happiness as feelings, status, and security. You must not force yourself to feel good too quickly. There are lessons to be learned and insights into life and your heart to be grasped. We learn and grow and change and move forward through the wilderness. There is no other way. Our muscles are strengthened. Our minds are transformed. And our lives are changed as we engage the wilderness. John sixteen thirty three. In this world, you will have trouble. When will we see the face of God? When will we finally be able to say, Suffering is no more. And the scriptures teach that only in Christ we're able to understand that on this side of the cross we are invited to suffer with Christ as he did on the cross. And as we die his death together with him we are raised up with him. That's the promise. That the journey he walked through life through suffering, leads to life. As we understand that to be our own, then and only then do we know how to be blessed because we know how to mourn. Would you pray with me? God, we bless you today. We love you, not because our life is perfect, but because you are here in the wilderness with us, most ultimately in the cross of Christ. Each day you are with us in the midst of our suffering and our wilderness. And we love you for that. And we will follow you through this wilderness onto glory, into life. In Jesus' name, amen.